0: and I'm not sure if I like that or not. I guess I do on the whole. Um, Maybe I should give a reminder here to please silence your cell phones since I hear that some people are getting some uh, alerts or something. Abby says hers is off. Uh, But I know we heard several go off at once. I assume that's an Amber Alert or something like that. So if you haven't silenced that, please do so now so that uh, we don't disrupt our services any further. Uh, But at any rate... These lessons have been fantastic, and I want to plug one more time. Come back tonight, not only at 6, but be here at 5 to sing. Uh, That will be a tremendously uplifting experience for you, as anyone who's been here for these can attest, as we've learned to appreciate what we do when we sing even more. And with that in mind, I actually want to take a bit of a page from Myron's book this morning. One of the things he's been doing in these lessons is it's not so much teaching us about the mechanics of singing, it's on getting us to appreciate the words, the message, the lyrical content. And so we want to look at a psalm today, the 32nd psalm. We want to dig into this and work our way through it because you see the psalms are are songs. The psalter is the Hebrew hymnal. And these are even better than the songs we have in our books because these songs are inspired. Although after hearing that story about Be With Me, Lord, in our class, if you were here for that, I may need to revise my whole doctrine of uh, inspiration about how that exactly works. But this psalm, the 32nd psalm, is particularly meaningful to us, I think, because it deals with sin. And that's something we all have to confront. Sin is an inescapable part of the human condition. And when we're talking about sin, we're not talking so much about breaking a list from a rule of commandments. We're not talking about thou shalt or thou shalt nots. These aren't arbitrary things that we can check off. Sin is fundamentally about separation. Separation from God. Separation from others separation from ourselves in the sense of what God has called us and created us to be, people who bear his image out in the world. And yet we all sin. And so we all experience this feeling of separation, of alienation. And so because of that, so many people in this world, Christians included at times, are wracked by guilt. And guilt is absolutely debilitating. Guilt destroys our confidence. It makes us afraid that people are going to find out what we've done and who we really are beneath the mask, beneath the veneer that we try to present to everyone else. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle used to tell a story, and in some versions he was involved in this, and others he was just telling it, whatever actually happened but to try to illustrate the fact that everyone has some sort of skeleton in their closet. He selected some archdeacon in the church who everyone agreed was above any sort of approach, and he sent him an anonymous telegram, and it simply said, all is discovered, flee at once. And as the story goes, that archdeacon packed up and nobody ever saw him again. He was gone. Now, I don't know whether that actually happened or not, but it is an excellent illustration of what Solomon writes in Proverbs chapter 28, verse 1, the wicked one flees, though no one pursues, but the righteous is as bold as a lion. So is guilt destroying your confidence this morning? Guilt damages our relationships. When we live with unconfessed sin in our lives, it has a tendency to build up inside us and we lash out at other people. We're angry for no reason or maybe we pull away from our loved ones. So is guilt affecting your relationships with people this morning? Guilt keeps us stuck in the past. Do you ever find yourself continuously replaying sins that you've committed, things that you've done that you ought not to have done? And I'm not talking about yesterday or last week or last month, but maybe years or even decades ago. Someone has said that guilt can't change the past just like worry can't change the future, but it can make you miserable today. So is guilt keeping you a prisoner of your past this morning. And while many of us wrestle With false guilt, we feel guilty even though we really ought not to. I think there are too few of us who feel a real and true sense of guilt at times. We don't take it seriously enough. Instead of confessing our sins, we try to bury them. We try to sweep them under the rug. We hide them. And we know that we ought not to do that. And scripture calls us back again and again and again to the truth that we are all sinners. We've all missed the mark of God's perfection. In short, one of the main reasons we feel guilt is because we're guilty. As the preacher writes, Ecclesiastes 7 verse 20, there is not a righteous man on earth who does what is right and never sins. Now that's our common lot, but thankfully there is a solution for our guilt, for our brokenness, for our separation from what God has called us to be, from others and from God himself, and that's casting ourselves penitently on God's grace, on his mercy, and receiving what he offers us, this tremendous gift Of divine forgiveness and that brings us to the 32nd psalm but before turning to the text itself I want us to consider just a little bit of background as we've seen in some of these songs that Myron has taken us through in many cases understanding a little bit about the author helps us to understand the song better. Well, if you have your Bible open, you'll notice most translations will have this. There's a superscription at the top, and this says a psalm of David or a a mascal of David, which is just a, a musical term, we believe. But at any rate, the superscription attributes this psalm to David. Now, these superscriptions aren't part of the original text. They're in the third person, every one of them. They were all written years later but they are all present in the canonical Hebrew text and they're present in all of the early translations of scripture, so just as an example, the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, the Bible that was in use in much of the first century, all of these superscriptions are there. So in other words, even if these aren't technically inspired, I think we can trust because of their antiquity that they're historically reliable. These are telling us things that are true. And so this is telling us that David was the author of this psalm. Now, we all know about David. David was a great man. David was a great king. David walked with God for much of his life to the point that he was called a man after God's own heart. But if we know anything about David, we also know that David was a great sinner, most prominently an adulterer and a murderer. Now, when we read through this psalm, some have the historical circumstances laid out in that superscription. This one doesn't. So we don't know the particular historical circumstances that occasion this, but that doesn't matter. Whatever the specific sin was, that's not really important. There are probably many to choose from. What is important is that we realize that when David writes this song, he writes as not a perfect man, but as a sinner who's been forgiven. And that means that when we read this psalm, we can know we can be fully restored, completely forgiven, no matter what we've done. When we look at it more deeply, we could divide this up a lot of different ways for study, but I just want us to focus on three sections today. I guess you could think of these as verses to the song. Verses 1 and 2, the blessings of forgiveness. Then the weight of sin in verses 3 through 5, and finally we'll see the power of God on display in verses 6 through 11. So, first of all, the blessings of forgiveness in verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. The very first word of this psalm is blessed. And that has a rich meaning in Hebrew that we can't really convey one-to-one in English there's just no one word that does it justice we might be able to translate it by saying something like how happy is the one who's forgiven or oh the bliss of the one who is forgiven or congratulations to the one who's been forgiven hence the title of our sermon today and even though this doesn't come through in English in Hebrew This word is actually in the plural. Now, we don't use plurals this way in English, but in Hebrew, that's an intensifier. So what that means is these blessings are abundant. They're overflowing. There's so many of them. We can't even comprehend all of these blessings that are being poured out here. Supreme, perfect, overflowing. In terms of the shape of the Psalms, this is actually the second Psalm to begin with the word, Blessed. And I don't know if you remember what the first one is, but if you know the Psalms very well, it's actually the very first Psalm. And I'll take you back there to a passage that's probably familiar. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. How happy we are. Oh, the bliss of the one who continues in God's will, the one who doesn't find himself falling into sin but instead meditates on God's Word day and night. That's the bliss we ought to aspire to. And yet when we fail, as we inevitably will fail, the 32nd Psalm tells us we're still blessed when those sins we commit are forgiven. So the description here doesn't presuppose someone who's lived a sinless life, but a person who has sinned and yet is forgiven. And what a blessing that is. Thank God for that. It's far better to not ever experience the pain and the consequences that come with sin. Then you're truly blessed. Congratulations to you. But when you sin, you can be restored. Things can be made right. You can be reconciled to God and you can have those blessings all over again. That's a wonderful thing for us to keep in mind. David gives us a threefold description of sin here. You notice he mentions, he uses the word transgression, he uses the word sin, he uses the word iniquity. His transgressions forgiven, sins covered, against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Charles Spurgeon called this the three headed dog barking at the gates of hell. And if you want to know more about what these terms mean, transgressions are acts of rebellion against God. Sin's the most general term. That just means straying from the path. Uh, It's akin to the term we're most familiar with in the Greek, the missing the mark. Iniquity indicates disrespect for God's will. But the point isn't you remember all those specific nuances every time you see these words the point is in keeping with the parallelism of hebrew poetry this is trying to be comprehensive we're covering the whole range of human evil that's what's on display here and in just that same way you notice david uses three words to cover the forgiveness that god extends your transgression is forgiven your sin is covered that iniquity is not counted against you. The word forgiven, that means to lift up a heavy burden, and to carry it away. Covered, that refers to what's concealed. God puts it out of sight. It's wiped away. The word does not count or counts not, that's a word that's rich, rich. In meaning if you go back to Genesis chapter 15 and verse 4 this is the same term that's used there when God says of Abraham that he counted or he reckoned his faith to him as righteousness Romans chapter 4 tells us that God does that same thing for those of us who are in Christ he doesn't count our sins to us rather he counts to us the righteousness of Christ so the point, again, with these three words in contrast to those three words for sin, this is just to signify the completeness of God's forgiveness. It's all-encompassing. So is it any wonder that David talks about that as a blessing? How happy you are? Congratulations to the one who's been forgiven fully and completely. We can think of other passages in the Old Testament in particular that talk about God's forgiveness this way. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, another one that's inspired a song. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. A little bit later in Isaiah, in chapter 43, the prophet says, when God forgives, he forgets. I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. We so often fail to forgive other people the way that God forgives us. Have you ever heard anyone say that, well, I'll forgive you, but I won't forget? you ever said that yourself? God doesn't deal with us that way. When he forgives, he forgets. That blackboard, like on our PowerPoint, is wiped clean. It's as if it never happened. And thank God he doesn't hold on to the things that we've done the way that we do toward others. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed my transgression from me, the psalmist says, 103 verse 12. The prophet Micah says he's taken all our sins and he's cast them down into the depths of the sea. They're down there, they're buried, they're sunken. They're never going to be recovered. The last part of this section reads here, blessed is the one in whose spirit there is no deceit. That doesn't mean someone who has no faults, we're not talking about someone who's perfect here, we're talking here about authenticity. We're talking here about the fact that the writer is not deceitful in acknowledging sin. There's no attempt to to cover this up anymore. And we're gonna see the relevance of that idea come out of the next section in verses three through five with the means of renewal, but the point is, our forgiveness hinges on repentance on confession, on not trying to lie to ourselves and to God about who we are and what we've done, but instead of opening ourselves up, confessing our sins, being devoid of deceit, only then will we experience this happiness of forgiveness. So we go on then to the second section, verses 3 through 5. David talks about the weight of sin, and I'll just read verses 3 and 4 to begin For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. So this is the grief that characterizes that unrepentant state and David characterizes you notice it as a time of silence now remember in context the one who has no deceit versus the one who keeps silent this is the absence of confession this is when he tried to sweep everything under the rug when he tried to to hide his sins there to live in denial to himself and to God and you see that the result of that was not pretty. Now I don't know exactly what he's describing here. On the one hand, this is poetry and we could be poetically describing his decaying spiritual life here. The the groaning there could be that of the, the spirit, the consequences of stifling your conscience. Uh, the aging bones, that could be a picture of the growing weakness of your spiritual life. Or when we see that heavy hand of God upon him, that could be experienced internally, this awareness that you need to repent but stubborn, you're calcified, you're not going to do it. On the other hand, this could be referring to very real physical consequences here of bottling up, repressing a problem, that guilt we talked about, anger and bitterness, when you allow those things to fester, those can create physical problems, can't they? We call that a, a psychosomatic illness and we probably all experience that to some extent, ulcers, high blood pressure, migraine headaches, insomnia, lower back pain, on and on and on. We could go with the physical consequences of things like this. Whether spiritual decay or physical decay or both, the point is the consequences of sin are severe, even in the moment when we try to bottle it up. But it's not easy for us to admit our sins, is it? We don't like to confess them, and we're not even talking here about when you need to go and make things right with someone else that you've wronged. That's hard. But we even have a hard time admitting to ourselves and to God who we really are and what we've done. It's like the fellow who went into the Hallmark store looking for a card and he finally went to the clerk and he said, do you have anything that doesn't quite say I'm sorry, but vaguely hints at some sort of wrongdoing? That's the way that we so often are. We might tip our hat generally to human frailty yeah I have some weaknesses I've got some imperfections we might pray generally forgive us of our sins Lord but seldom if ever do we really fall down on our knees in genuine repentance and confess what we've done I've done this and I need you to help me God I need your forgiveness and I need you to keep me penitent try to turn me away from that sin instead we try to cover it up we lie to ourselves We lie to God even though we know we can't really lie to him. In contrast, verse 5 shows us the difficult approach, but the proper approach. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. So instead of concealing, instead of denying, David now comes clean he confesses. And you notice how he takes that personal responsibility we talked about here. We got those same three words again, sin, iniquity, transgression, but all prefaced with that personal pronoun, my, my sin, my iniquity, my transgressions. So this indicates his repentance, his confession, it's complete, it's total. There's no more holding back. But I want you to notice here, this is what's wonderful and what I think is maybe the most important phrase in this psalm. As soon as David confesses all of this, the last line, you forgave the iniquity of my sins, immediately it results in forgiveness. You see, confession is like like opening the floodgates of a dam when you sin. And when that guilt is building up inside you, it builds and it builds and it builds and there's all of that pressure there forming and there's going to be trouble. But when you open the floodgates, it's instantly released and all of that pressure rushes out. See, the wonderful thing about forgiveness as it relates to God, God wants to forgive us even more than we want to be forgiven by him. We don't have to beg God to forgive us. We don't have to bargain with him. We don't have to promise that we're going to do something for him in order to receive his forgiveness in a sort of quid pro quo arrangement. We don't have to do any acts of penance in order to receive his forgiveness. What we do have to do is confess our sins and then try to the best of our ability to go and to sin no more. Well, after talking about this blessing of forgiveness and the weight of sin, David goes on in the rest of this psalm to talk about God's power to help. And we can divide this up a little bit further. You can see God's power on display in in three ways here. His protection, his instruction, and his steadfast love. His protection, his instruction, and his steadfast love. So first of all, his protection in verses 6 and 7. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach you. You're a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. David urges those who are godly to pray. Whenever you feel that weight of unrepented sin in your life, turn to God in prayer. That's the advice that he gives. And this metaphor of rushing waters indicates that God's going to reach down and he's going to help you in those times of trouble. He'll vindicate you. You'll be victorious through him. Then we see his instruction in verses 8 and 9. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curved with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Now this is where it's important, uh, like we've seen in some of the songs, to know who's speaking. This is God's response to David. And by extension, what he's saying to us. In fact, verse number nine, be not like a horse or a mule, that's actually in the plural. He's talking to all of us here. And the point is, we need to have a teachable spirit so that we'll accept those lessons of the first five verses. Don't be stubborn, don't dig in, don't force God to break you the way that you would in a a rodeo or something like that. Instead, we need to allow God to gently touch us and to be able to turn us the way that he would have us to go. Let's allow ourselves to be counseled by him. Finally, the psalm ends on this note of joy and praise. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. When we stay close to the Lord by cultivating this spirit of surrender and submission, and when we regularly practice confession, we can't help but break out into joy and we'll experience, well, the ESV calls it steadfast love. This is one of the most important words. We talked about this earlier this week, David. This is one of the most important words in all of the Old Testament, hesed. Sometimes you'll see it translated as steadfast love. Sometimes as God's mercy, loving kindness. That's a word they had to invent in English back for the King James Version to try to translate it. And the idea is God's love that doesn't quit. God's love that is always faithful. Even when you're unfaithful to him, God keeps on loving you. And we can know that goodness, that covenant faithfulness that he extends to us. I can't think of a better reason to rejoice. So clearly when we evaluate this song, it conveys to us some fundamental wisdom. Now this was a favorite of Augustine. So much so that he actually had it inscribed on the wall on his sick bed, so that he could look at it, read it, think about it each and every day. And according to him, the wisdom of this psalm was this. The beginning of knowledge is to know oneself to be a sinner. Well, that's true. And that is something that this psalm teaches us. We've talked extensively about the fact that we need to be willing to lay ourselves bare, to admit that we've sinned, to acknowledge that and to confess it. But if that were all this psalm had to teach us, it would be pretty dismal, wouldn't it? You're a sinner. Okay, great. (laughs) That's not the message that this psalm is really teaching to us, not primarily. That's part of it. But it doesn't leave us there. It doesn't leave us without any guidance about what we can do about that condition. Instead, it offers us a resolution by trusting in one who's not weak like us, but who's strong. And turning to one who's not sinful like us, but one who is holy and pure. One who is ready to receive us and bless us and manifest that steadfast love toward us if we'll only let him. I can't think of any better way to close our lesson this morning, than a poem. Some of you may be familiar with this. I've never used it here, I don't believe. It's by a woman called Louise, named Louisa Fletcher, and the poem's called The Land of Beginning Again. I wish that there were some wonderful place in the land of beginning again where all our mistakes and all our heartaches and all of our poor, selfish grief could be dropped like a shabby old coat at the door and never put on again. I wish we could come on it all unaware like the hunter who finds a lost trail. And I wish that the one whom our blindness had done the greatest injustice of all could be there at the gates like an old friend that waits for the comrade he's gladest to hail. We would find all the things we intended to do but forgot and remembered too late. Little praises unspoken, little promises broken and all the thousand and one little duties neglected that might have perfected the day for one less fortunate. It wouldn't be possible not to be kind in the land of beginning again. And the ones we misjudged and the ones whom we grudged their moments of victory here would find in the grasp of our loving hand clasp more than penitent lips could explain. For what had been hardest, we'd know had been best. And what had seemed loss would be gain. For there isn't a sting that will not take ween when we faced it and laughed it away. And I think that the laughter is most what we're after in the land of beginning again. So I wish that there were some wonderful place called the land of beginning again. Where all our mistakes and all our heartaches and all of our poor selfish grief could be dropped like a shabby old coat at the door, never put on again. I think that's what this psalm speaks to. I think that's what we all want. Reconciliation, restoration, being what God intended us to be, what he created us to be, and in a right relationship with him, and in a right relationship with others. And ultimately, we know we'll have that in eternity with him. All tears will be dry. All griefs will be comforted. All hurts will be mended. All regrets will be repaired. All insults undone. All relationships restored. But the good news of the gospel, the good news of this psalm, the good news for those of us who are in Christ is that we don't have to wait for eternity, to live in that land of beginning again. We don't have to just wait it out. We have a foretaste of heaven here on earth in the kingdom of God. He reigns, he rules here and now. We can have that new beginning if we want it, if we choose to avail ourselves of it. What would it take If we're truly going to be God's people, we have to be candid about our brokenness. We have to admit that we're imperfect, acknowledge those things. We must be eager for restoration. We've gotta wanna be right with God. We must be willing and ready to forgive others, and not just to forgive others, but to risk ourselves the same way that God has risked himself, giving all of himself to secure our redemption. We have to risk ourselves in love and mercy and forgiveness. And if we do those things, then we might begin again here in this life. I want to ask you this morning, have you done that? If you're here today and you're outside of Christ, you don't have those sins washed away. That slate has not been wiped clean for you. You don't have that promise of a new beginning. And so I want to urge you to to receive those wonderful blessings of forgiveness we've talked about by putting your faith, your trust in Jesus, turning to God in repentance, confessing that Jesus is Lord, being buried with him in the waters of baptism and having your sins washed away, being added to his people, being part of that covenant people of God who are the beneficiaries of that steadfast love. Maybe you're here this morning. You already are a Christian. But you've wandered away. There's sin in your life. You've been trying to hide it. You've denied it to yourself and to God. Know that whatever it is, it's not too bad and it's not too late. God is always eager to extend forgiveness to those who repent. Maybe you need to do that in a public way this morning. If you do, whatever your need may be, we want you to come now while we stand and while we sing. For me, see.